Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Ray Boomhauer on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Robert F. Kennedy and the 1968 Indiana Primary. The book is obviously quite timely, as we have an election coming up in the United States, so it is an appropriate time to revisit the interesting election of 1968. People are, of course, still fascinated with the Kennedys, and Robert Kennedy was among the more interesting of them. Ray does a terrific job of describing how Kennedy got into the race and how he prosecuted it in Indiana, and ultimately with a favorable result, and then how he went on and was tragically killed in California. So we should thank Ray for writing such an appropriate book. I enjoyed talking to him, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Ray. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. And how is it? fine here in Indianapolis. Really? Yeah, well, thank you for mentioning the weather, because it's really terrible here in Iowa. We have drizzle, and as I just told you in the pre-interview, we were sent outside during a, a fire alarm, during which I got quite wet. Uh, but I'm, I'm safe and sound now, and warm and dry here in my office. Um, I should tell our listeners that we have uh, Ray Baumhauer on the show um, today, and we'll be talking about his new book, Robert F. Kennedy and the 1968 Indiana Primary. I've read the book. I think it's really terrific. It it, it set aside a lot of the, mis, the misimpressions that I had about RFK and uh, this moment late in his political career, and I, I think it should receive a, a, a large um, a lot of attention um, per- precisely because it, it relates to the uh, upcoming American presidential race. So, Ray, thanks very much for being on the show. Um, perhaps I could begin by just asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself, where you came from, where you went to school, and how you came to write this book. Well, I'm a native Hoosier. I was uh, born and raised in uh, northern Indiana, in a town called Mishawaka, which we like to say is just five miles from the Golden Dome at Notre Dame, so mm-hmm. people know where we are located. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I was always interested in history from a young age. I had a very good third-grade teacher who noticed that uh, I enjoyed reading books about history and uh, biography, and she she steered me to our uh, elementary school's small library. There's a large bookcase there that were filled with these um, books with uh, gold covers, and this was the... um, um, a series of biographies for young readers put out by um, Bob Merrill of Indianapolis, an old Indianapolis yeah, sure. company. And these were biographies of uh, you know, notable American figures like Babe Ruth, Andrew Jackson, Clara Barton. And uh, they were great reading for someone who was interested in history. Uh, later on, I learned uh, that uh, some of the uh, dialogue and the information in these books may not have been quite factually <laughs> accurate, but they they were gripping stories, and they really got you involved in these people's lives, mm-hmm. and that really hooked me on history at a young age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that counts for something. And then after after that point, did you, did you go on to school? You went on to college and then graduate school, I suppose? I went on to college. I uh, turned to journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was involved in my high school newspaper. I was uh, editor there. And so I turned to uh, uh, Indiana University in Bloomington in uh, the Ernie Pyle School of Journalism mm-hmm. down down there and uh, got a degree in journalism and also a degree in political science. Mm-hmm. I've always had uh, a fascination with politics. 
And after I graduated, I went on to work at a couple of uh, small-town Indiana newspapers, mm-hmm. one in Rensselaer, Indiana, which is in the northwestern uh, part of the state uh, near the Calumet region, mm-hmm. uh, close to uh, Chicago area. And then for a couple years in uh, Anderson, Indiana. This was uh, shortly, this was in the ni- mid-1980s, and this was shortly after uh, Anderson had uh, received nationwide attention as having, I think, the highest unemployment rate in the whole mm-hmm. country because it was very involved in the automobile industry. Mm-hmm. It was a big slump at that time in the automobile mm-hmm. industry. Um, so it was quite interesting to uh, report from um, this Indiana town that was suffering this economic collapse. Um, but I covered uh, education there and also um, city government and politics. Mm-hmm. And then how did you turn to history? Well, I had a friend who uh, worked at the Indiana State Museum in Indianapolis, and he was a former college roommate of mine, and told me about an opening in the uh, public relations department there. Mm-hmm. And like uh, a lot of reporters, kind of got quickly burned out on the day-to-day process yeah. of uh, you know, working in journalism. Yeah. And I've still had the fascination with history, and mm-hmm. this was like a good opportunity for me, so I, I moved there. And then in 1987, I started my long career here at the Indiana Historical Society, mm-hmm. taking over as their public relations coordinator. Mm-hmm. And then thanks to um, Kent Calder, who uh, was editor of our magazine called Traces of Indiana Midwestern History, mm-hmm. our popular history magazine, which started in 1989, mm-hmm. he gave me the opportunity to, to write for the magazine. Mm-hmm. When he left in 1999 for Greener Pastures, uh, I took over as uh, the editor of the publication. Mm-hmm. I see. And and you've written a number of books, I think, since then, haven't you? Am I not uh, about incorrect? About ten so far. Holy um, cow! Most having to do <laughs> having to do with uh, Indiana history. That's uh, amazing. A lot of uh, biographical pieces on uh, famous Hoosiers. Yeah, that's quite remarkable. That's a, you know, again, you sort of put us uh, academic historians to shame. I'm, it's, <laughs> don't tell yeah, don't, don't I, tell my I, department I that you published ten books. That would be bad right. for me. <laughs> <laughs> I do have some academic training. You know, I, I did get a, a master's oh, sure. in history from uh, Indiana University yeah. in, in Indianapolis while working at the Historical Society. Yeah. But I don't really consider myself an academic historian. I'm more like those people like William Manchester yeah. or David McCullough, uh-huh. achieve their sales figures. Yet. Yeah, right. Well, you will. You will one but day. Hopefully someday I will. No, but, I, you know, people who are interested in history but don't have that, you know, PhD. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't, the, the mark of academic history in my mind is not the possession of the PhD so much as a kind of attitude toward the evidence and research. And I think that you have that absolutely in spades. The thing which I think should make... Um, let's put it differently, academic historians in the sense of those of us who work at uh, colleges and universities to shame is that uh, we teach two or three classes a week and um, you have to go to work every day and do stuff. <laughs> and you still produce more things than we do. So I think that you uh, you should give yourself more credit, I guess I would say. And also I should tell our readers that the book, uh, it, it, um, it certainly rises to the standard of of academic history. There's absolutely no question about that. Um, well, so, no, it's, I always, yes, try to get all the facts. Correct. It's absolutely terrific. You know, and one thing I should say um, that makes it in many senses superior to academic history is that it is, it is and, and I hope you take this in the right way, it is blessedly brief. Um, I have to read too many books that are 450 pages long when they could actually be 100. 
And this one, I think, has, and maybe it has to do with your experiences of journalism, but you tell I the think story. It might have something to do with yeah, writing for the general public. You have to be brief and to the point. Yeah. You know, I, I enjoy what I call the uh, you know, kind of doorstopper biographies, like Robert uh, Carroll's work on yeah. uh, Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, that, that, that really is. Four or 500 pages. Yeah, that really is something, yeah. But I'd also like the shorter, conciser biographies, mm-hmm. like uh, the Modern Lives series, uh, Emmett Lives series. Yeah. Which are you know very concise, uh, gives you all the details you need to know about a particular subject, mm-hmm. and then uh, it has you you know uh, move on maybe to uh, to uh, longer books about them. Yeah, no, I quite agree with you, but I, I do find that a lot of the books that I read, produced by uh, college and university professors, are are often uh, full of material that might very well be excised by a, a judicious editor, and and um, you know that the story almost gets. Um, it gets obscured by a lot of the apparatus that's involved. And I, and I, I, I don't see know if it's because academics are trying to write for our day as their main goal to write for other academics, and you know, non-academics are writing for the general public. Yeah, that's the case. Yeah, I used to. Work, I was in journalism myself for a little while, and I, and one of the things I learned there, I don't know if it's true. I'll probably hear from our listeners about this, but I always felt that that um, while it's true, some people write better than others. That really, there are good stories. First and foremost, and then second, there are good writers. You need to have a good story first. That's right. There's some phrase that always reverberates through my mind whenever I'm taking that project: is that good history begins with a good story. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and you can't make a bad story into a good story very easily. But a good story itself will kind of tell itself. And I, th- I think that's very nice. You know, your your book does a nice job of that because this is kind of a gripping moment in American political history. It's one that that almost all of us, uh, if, we, if we don't remember it directly, and I don't, um, that we've heard about, you know, the speech, for example, and we'll talk about that in a second, on the day that Martin Luther King was killed. I mean, they, they, uh, they, they, were, uh, they were discussing that recently on NPR, and it brought to that to mind. So, yeah. I mean, 1968 is such a momentous year yeah. in, uh, in history and in politics in particular in, in the United States. That it's, a, it's a fascinating story to tell. Again. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get right to the book. Um, how, how did you come to write it? Well, we ha- at the Historical Society, we have uh, in our library a very large collection of photographs. I think we have like a million and a half uh, in the collection. Really? And when I started work at the Historical Society, there was one image in particular that really struck my attention. And that's of uh, Robert Kennedy here in Indianapolis. He's uh, before micro- microphone. It's on a dark night. There's a packed-in crowd looking up anxiously at him. Uh, some photographers near him, some reporters with their tape recorders out. Mm-hmm. And he's given a speech mm-hmm. here in Indianapolis on April 4, 1968, uh, in the evening, telling this crowd that had thought they were going to just your typical campaign rally that Martin Luther King Jr. had been uh, shot and killed in mm-hmm. Memphis, Tennessee. And um, most, the majority of those in the crowd had not heard that news. And it always fascinated me what brought Kennedy here to. Indiana to Indianapolis, so he could make that speech on that uh, momentous time in American history. And he was here because he was involved in the Indiana Democratic presidential primary, mm-hmm. because this was his really first opportunity to get his message across to voters when he uh, announced on March 16th that he'd be uh, entering uh, the presidential contest against such figures as the incumbent president, uh, Lyndon Johnson. And uh, the usurper, uh, the um, the guy who had um, just inspired thousands of college students across the country, Eugene McCarthy, mm-hmm. with his near victory in the New Hampshire primary. So that's really got me interested. 
there was a, a gentleman named John Barlow Martin who was a former reporter, kind of a freelance journalist who had written for the Big Slick magazines of the 1950s, mm -hmm. like Saturday Evening Post, mm -hmm. Life and Look, Harper's, who was from Indianapolis and uh, was a very key and influential advisor for Kennedy in the Indiana primary since he was from here, had written about Indiana, and I had done some work on John Barlow Martin. I went to the Library of Congress and uh, looked at his papers and I wrote an article about him for Traces. And he played a, a really big role in the 68 uh, primary. So all this interest kind of got together for me to uh, put together this book on Robert Kennedy's time here in 68 in the Hoosier State. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thank you for relating that. Um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the book, and again, it was one of my misapprehensions that were, were uh, dashed completely, is I, I was under the impression that, uh, that Kennedy, that RFK had planned to run um, – almost from the very beginning, but that isn't true. Why don't you begin the story by telling us how uh, he decided to get in? Well, he, I think Robert Kennedy was very conflicted in, in 1968. He was under a, a lot of pressure from uh, more liberal members of the Democratic Party to uh, take on Johnson and uh, do something, anything, uh, about Americans' involvement in the Vietnam War. But there was also, on the other hand, an equal number of advisors who were telling, telling him that you know, 68 was too early. He should wait for the 1972 election, and that if he decided to take on um, a sitting incumbent president, he'd be, um, you know, committing political suicide. Mm -hmm. That he would never be um, someone that the party would turn to in future years. If he entered the race, he'd be splitting apart the Democratic Party and ensuring that a Republican would win in the, the November election. And so he was very conflicted about it, uh, kept going back and forth, uh, couldn't really make up his mind. And when uh, some uh, young, um, younger members you know, of the Democratic Party, like Aller Lowenstein and Curtis Gans, put together uh, kind of a Dump Johnson movement, you know, they were going around uh, trying to uh, get some uh, prominent Democrat to run against Johnson in the 68 primary. Mm -hmm. First person they thought, of course, was, was Robert Kennedy because mm -hmm. he had... Uh, been an opponent of Johnson, and uh, great animosity between the two men. Uh, there was a, a book, in fact, about their relationships I thought was very apt with its title. It was called Mutual Contempt. Mm -hmm. And neither man really liked the, the other one. And so they approached Kennedy, uh, but he finally just, just turned him down, saying that you know, if I did run, it was just I would just be accused of doing it out of spite. That I was just doing it because you know, I don't like Johnson and mm -hmm. the issues would be lost. And so, eventually, he, he decided um, to stay out of the race for the foreseeable future, as he said at the time. Mm -hmm. and, um, the Gans and uh, Lowenstein turned instead to uh, Eugene McCarthy, who had uh, been uh, an early critic of the Vietnam War involvement in it, and also had his own. A bit of animosity uh, against Johnson going back to 1964 when he had been considered as a possible running mate uh, in that election mm -hmm. uh, but had been um, uh, passed over for uh, Hubert Humphrey instead. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think really McCarthy ever got over that, that uh, he was passed over in favor of mm -hmm. Hubert Humphrey, his fellow senator from Minnesota. Minnesota, yeah. So he decided to uh, announce that uh, he would be uh, taking on Johnson and of course, uh, entered the New Hampshire primary, and his message really inspired um, thousands of young college students from across the country uh, to uh, campaign for him, canvas the state, go door to door, pass out literature, 
and to get his message across to New Hampshire voters. You know, they uh, cut their hair, shaved off their beards, and uh, went from mini skirts to longer skirts and mm-hmm. went clean for jeans. <laughs> yeah, really made a, a difference. And uh, McCarthy was not very well known with the uh, general public at the time when he made his announcements that he'd be running. There was a poll, I think, that 60% had never heard of Eugene McCarthy in New Hampshire. Uh, a lot of people confused him with uh, Joe McCarthy, uh, the old Wisconsin um, senator of the 1950s uh, witch hunt. Yeah. And um, so he wasn't seen as someone who would do very well against uh, incumbent president, but kind of shock uh, the whole country in political pundits by winning uh, 42% of the vote to Johnson's uh, 49 in the New Hampshire primary. It was, mm-hmm. And within, I think it was a couple hundred votes if you kind of uh, write in ballots from actually uh, defeating Johnson in that primary. Mm-hmm. And this made RFK uh, look at things again? This uh, McCarthy strong showing really caused Kennedy to reassess his uh, decision not to enter the race. He can no longer be accused of splitting up the Democratic Party because McCarthy's strong showing had uh, indicated there were deep divisions already within the party. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Kennedy decided uh, the time was ripe, and just uh, four days after McCarthy's strong showing uh, announced that he too would be uh, running in the primaries uh, against Johnson. And uh, this announcement really uh, caused a lot of bitter feeling among the young college students who had uh, worked so hard for McCarthy. Uh, one of them compared it to, uh, you know, New Hampshire was their Christmas, and they woke up the next day and went down to the tree, and Robert Kennedy had uh, stolen all their Christmas presents. Mm-hmm. And even Murray Kempton, who was a, a liberal columnist at that time, was so enraged that he accused of, you know, Kennedy of coming down out of the, out of the hills to uh, shoot the wounded. Mm-hmm. Very, yeah. uh, very bitter feeling against Kennedy for uh, stealing McCarthy's thunder at this time. Yeah, I think this and is something I was going to say. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, you know, this is this is something I think that is forgotten in the RFK hagiography. That in fact there were many Democrats that thought uh, he was behaving opportunistically at this time. This is one of the things I found most enlightening about your book, is that there were many people in the Democratic Party that just wanted him to stay away at this point. Um, and he, uh, you know, RFK was an interesting character. He was rather bullheaded about some things. And uh, I, actually, I interviewed a couple of other people, um, your colleagues, American historians, about RFK. And, you know, he um, once he got his teeth in something, he was very unlikely to let it go. But, I, you know, I enjoyed that part of your book. It showed that there were significant factions of the Democratic Party that really wondered about what RFK was doing. Right, and it, and it just plays up also the, some of the negative feelings about Kennedy. Uh, by jumping into a race like this, he was accused of once again of uh, being ruthless. Yeah. You know, he had had this ruthless reputation yeah. dating back to his days running his brother's campaign. Mm-hmm. His campaign manager, he had to be uh, the no man, uh, the guy who mm-hmm. uh, you know told people no and told them they weren't working hard enough. Mm-hmm. And once again, when he was attorney general in his brother's administration, he was seen as someone um, going after you know the Teamsters Union, mm-hmm. organized crime, and just seen as someone who uh, would do anything um, for his side to win. Mm-hmm. That yeah. kind of was played up again by his decision to jump in the race when McCarthy was, had done so well. Yeah. Was he seen? I guess he was seen as an opportunist then by many people mm-hmm. in the Democratic Party. Yeah, no, I think that's probably not unfair. So how did um, uh, how did 
uh, McCarthy um, respond to this immediately after it was um, announced? McCarthy was kind of defiant at the time. He um, uh, met with Kennedy, and um, there was some talk about perhaps running, um, not in tandem per se, but kind of splitting up the primaries, that Kennedy would enter a primary one state, and McCarthy might enter the other one, and they uh, kind of uh, not tackle one another, but uh, work in tandem on the way to the convention that August. And at that time, you see who had the stronger showing and who might win the nomination, but uh, McCarthy nixed all that. Uh, Ted Kennedy even flew out to Wisconsin, where McCarthy was uh, campaigning in the primary there against Johnson, went on to actually defeat Johnson in that primary, mm-hmm. and with some kind of, you know, kind of tried to come some kind of understanding about uh, the two campaigns for the upcoming primary season. Um, but McCarthy kind of put him off, and really uh, no understanding was reached, and eventually... The two men uh, tackle one another in a series of primaries. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, take us actually directly to the Indiana primary then, and uh, why don't you... Uh, th- now, when R- RFK announced that the first place he was going to actually stand was, was in Indiana, but he had no organization, did he? No, he did not. <laughs> uh, it didn't really have, At the time, um, our governor at that time, Roger Brannigan, yeah. was going to be a stand-in for Johnson. Mm-hmm. Kind of what John had done in 64 was not really run any primaries, but get surrogates like state governors to, to run in his place. Mm-hmm. And Johnson had uh, a number of meetings with uh, Brannigan, convinced him to do this for him in the 68 primary. It's uh, something that Johnson and other Indiana governors had done for Johnson back in 64. Matt Welch, who was the Democratic governor at the time, had run in Johnson's stead in the primary against George Wallace, who had uh, come north uh, to kind of test out his uh, segregationist message mm-hmm. with the northern voters and mm-hmm. had done well in a number of primaries. And Welch had gone on to defeat Wallace in the Indiana primary. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Indiana was the first primary uh, available uh, to Kennedy to run in, but he wouldn't have support of the local Democratic Party apparatus because Brannigan had that locked up. So... Um, Kennedy uh, sent out uh, a political operative named Jared Doherty, who had been involved in uh, Ted Kennedy's senatorial first senatorial campaign in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. was a lawyer, had served in the Massachusetts legislature, and had kind of sent him out to any, uh, Indiana to test the water to see what kind of support Kennedy could draw upon. And uh, Doherty expected to be met at the airport by, you know, countless people, who, the people you would need to help run a political campaign mm-hmm. in the state. And only three three guys were <laughs> there at the airport to meet him. Now, these are very important guys, uh, a fellow named Louis Mayhern, um, Bill Schreiber, and Michael Riley. These were uh, young uh, Marion County Democrats from Indianapolis, uh, more liberal than the uh, regular Democratic Party Brannigan um, uh-huh. supporters, uh-huh. and people he could really count on to uh, help him uh, round up the people he would need in the state. Because, first of all, Kennedy had to get on the Indiana ballot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the state had uh, tightened its uh, laws regarding you know, so people wouldn't frivolously try to get their name on the ballot. So they had to get petitions signed by registered voters, uh, 5,500 of them, uh, 500 in each of Indiana's 11 congressional districts at that time. Mm-hmm. So calls went out to um, whoever these uh, young Democrats knew uh, throughout the state 
they lined up seminary students, uh, people from Chicago, went to northwest Indiana uh, to get these petitions out and get them signed and, and get them turned into uh, before the uh, March 28th deadline. Mm-hmm. And from the start, uh, that petition drive went very well. Uh, Louis Maher and I talked to him and interviewed him about us this time, and he said that um, people just didn't understand the level of animosity there was, you know, even with supporters of the war in Vietnam, against Lyndon Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, people just didn't like the president anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. They had the credibility gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't believing the pronouncements uh, from the Johnson administration. There had been, of course, a Tet Offensive. Mm-hmm. I've been shocked by that. You know, we were supposed to be winning the war mm-hmm. in Vietnam. <laughs> What's happening here with all these mm-hmm. yeah. major installations? Mm-hmm. I thought there was supposed to be a light at the end of the tunnel, but mm-hmm. uh, that wasn't the case. Yeah. And uh, so Doherty went back and met with uh, Kennedy and his advisor and said, you know, there's something here in Indiana I think that we're going to do well. And uh, a lot of advisors said, you know, this is a big gamble. Indiana is a conservative state. Um, there's a lot of support uh, for the Vietnam War. Not a state you think would be amenable to uh, Kennedy's more liberal message. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, Kennedy reminded him that his whole campaign was a gamble. He had mm-hmm. entered late. You know, it's not like today where you're running two, three years ahead of time. Mm-hmm. The convention was only in a, in a few short months, and here mm-hmm. he's trying to get enough delegates to, to win the nomination. Mm-hmm. So they decided uh, to enter, enter the Indiana primary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was kind of a, a you know, again, uh, on the basis of the little I know about Indiana politics are kind of a risky move. Why don't you talk a little bit about Indiana as a state? Because, you know, my only experience with it, uh, and I've spent a, just a little bit of time there, um, is that it's, it's, uh, it's, it's quite heterogeneous, let's put it that way, northern and southern parts being somewhat different. Um, what was Indiana politics like in the late 1960s? In the late 1960s, uh, Indiana had uh, two Democratic senators, uh, Birch Bayh and Vance Harkey, but the Democratic Party, I think, in Indiana at that time and even today is uh, typically more conservative uh, than uh, most of the other uh, national, other states, other Democratic parties. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we're a large uh, white population, like I said, not, not a lot of uh, ethnic diversity. Um, there are, of course, um, African-American populations in Indianapolis, in the North, yeah. northwestern mm-hmm. part of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, but the typical Middle Western state, um, John Bartlow Martin called us um, skeptical, uh, phlegmatic, and uh, really uh, with a show-me attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Missouri is a show-me state. <laughs> but, uh, Hoosier State is right up there, I think, with yeah. Missouri as far as that kind of attitude. Um, so Kennedy was facing formidable odds. Uh, Indianapolis was home to a very conservative a newspaper publisher, uh, Eugene Pulliam, who owned the Indianapolis Star and Indianapolis News. So Kennedy would not uh, be receiving very favorable coverage in uh, the major media outlet here mm-hmm. in Indianapolis. Um, Eugene Pulliam had shown that he had um, some respect for John Kennedy. He said it was someone that uh, you could you know, joke with, uh, but never really warmed to Robert Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And in the subsequent campaign here in, in Indiana, Use the columns of the Star to promote uh, the candidacy of uh, Roger Brannigan, mm-hmm. and uh, really didn't give a lot of coverage. Kind of ignored Eugene McCarthy, uh, but did whatever he could to strike at Robert Kennedy. Editorial uh, cartoons and front-page coverage for Brannigan, 
in uh, editorials sharply criticizing Kennedy for supposedly, um, you know, being an outsider coming in using his money to buy the election. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there were some long odds uh, against Kennedy, and from early on, a lot of his advisors were trying to get across to the media, spinning the media, that their best bet would be to finish second, actually, in the voting to Roger Brannigan. If they could just beat McCarthy, that would be seen as a victory. Mm-hmm. John Barlow Martin thought uh, that's probably what would happen, that mm-hmm. Kennedy would run, but finish second to Brannigan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how did uh, Kennedy run his race in Indiana? What was the style of the campaign? It was a campaign um, suited to Indiana voters. He tried to, I think, temper his message uh, to meet the needs of the crowds he was going to see on the campaign trail. Early on, uh, they tried to emphasize uh, the fact that he had been attorney general. Mm-hmm. Um, they, instead of saying attorney general, they were told, said in his uh, remarks uh, to Hoosier voters, he had been, you know, the chief law enforcement officer mm-hmm. uh, of the United States, yeah. his brother, and Lyndon Johnson, and always uh, because of the concern about uh, violence, the riots that had swept through um, a lot of major American cities in 1967, mm-hmm. crime uh, was a big issue, crime in the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, he always said, you know, the violence cannot be tolerated, uh, but tempered that with also that, you know, injustice. Uh, could not be tolerated mm-hmm. as well, but I think by that time most Hoosier voters had, had turned him off, but they wanted to hear that he was against violence. Mm-hmm. He did that. Mm-hmm. And he always also emphasized in his uh, speeches that you know Indiana had the opportunity that it hadn't had for many years to help choose a president. Mm-hmm. Uh, by voting for him and you know kind of ignoring the campaign of Roger Brannigan, he wasn't going anywhere, um, but they could help select the next president of the United States with their votes. Mm-hmm. And, 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 really emphasize. and how were relations between Brannigan and RFK? Uh, the RFK campaign, I think, treated Brannigan really with kid gloves. Mm-hmm. Um, when Kennedy came to Indianapolis on March 28th to get his petitions filed, he said that you know he respected the governor, considered him a friend, um, but the issues in the campaign would not be, you know, Indiana issues, but national issues, mm-hmm. that he was not really a serious candidate for the presidency. And the Hoosiers should not waste their votes and instead go ahead and, and select him as the, the president. Mm-hmm. I see. So um, maybe you could uh, tell us the story of the speech um, that he gave uh, on the day that Martin Luther King was assassinated, a speech uh, for which he is justly quite famous. Well, um, the campaign um, really got its kickstart here in Indiana on April 4th, but before that there was also a lot of uh, news uh, regarding the campaign because on March 31st, of course, Lyndon Johnson makes a surprise announcement that he would not be seeking or accepting his party's nomination uh, for a presidency. Yeah. Uh, this shocked everyone, uh, including Brannigan, uh, who had kind of had some inside knowledge that uh, Johnson was going to do this, um, but it uh, really hung him out to dry. It was too late for him to get his name off the ballot, but he decided to remain in the race as a favorite son candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, he thought he could um, use his um, uh, personal popularity with Hoosier voters uh, to win the primary, and he would have control then of the delegation that would go to the Chicago Convention. And from there he could wheel and deal. It would look like it might be um, you know, a free-for-all at the convention. 
mm-hmm. with uh, no one candidate getting having enough delegates to win the nomination. So he could try to uh, use his leverage to get um, you know things for Indiana and possibly even the vice presidential nomination for himself. Oh, I see. Okay. Happened before for for Hoosier politicians. Mm-hmm. We are, of course, the mother of vice presidents. Mm-hmm. Nice to say with five <laughs> candidates who have run in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but so uh, the campaign was a three-man race still, Brannigan, Kennedy, and uh, McCarthy. And on April 4th, um, Kennedy really kick-started his campaign here by having three events. He started out in uh, South Bend at the University of Notre Dame, where he gave a speech before about 5,000 people that jammed uh, step and center on the Notre Dame campus. Mm-hmm. And he talked uh, mainly about uh, hunger in American society saying that the American government needs to do more to help um, the starving children in the Mississippi Delta region, for example. And that's something that, uh, a theme he continued when he went on from South Bend to Muncie at Ball State University's men's gym, where he gave a speech before about uh, 12,000 people there. Mm-hmm. Um, quite a big crowd, gave a standard stump speech, and then uh, also did a question-and-answer session with uh, some of the crowd that was gathered there. Mm-hmm. From uh, Muncie, he was supposed to fly on to Indianapolis to open up his uh, campaign headquarters in downtown Indianapolis, and from there go to a uh, near north side neighborhood uh, to the Broadway Christian Center at 17th and Broadway Streets for an outdoor campaign rally in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. Uh, There were already people there uh, setting up tables to register voters for the upcoming primary. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Kennedy was supposed to give a typical stump speech at that rally. Mm -hmm. And he was on his way from uh, his speech in Muncie and at the airport shaking hands there. And there's a couple different reports. One is that uh, one of the organizers of the rally in Muncie heard over his car radio uh, that King had Martin Luther King had been shot in Memphis, Tennessee, mm-hmm. where he was uh, helping uh, striking sanitation workers, mm-hmm. uh, organizing rallies on their behalf. Mm-hmm. And uh, the organizer told Kennedy about this, and there was another story from a Muncie newspaper uh, that Kennedy was shaking hands in the crowd gathered to see him off when someone asked him if he'd heard the news about King being shot. And um, at that time, uh, they did not know that he had died, but they just said he had been seriously wounded. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until Kennedy's plane landed in Indianapolis, the Weirkook Airport, that Kennedy finally learned uh, that King had actually died. Mm-hmm. And uh, this caused quite a uh, bit of consternation uh, back and forth between uh, city officials who were worried that violence might break out if um, Kennedy went on to the rally site and gave his speech. Uh, some of his advisors also wondered, didn't want you know, any kind of uh, problems cropping up with uh, Kennedy and violence breaking out, as it had throughout a lot of uh, American cities uh, with the news of King's death spreading like wildfire. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were those at the site, including John Lewis, uh, who was a, an organizer and later, of course, went on to become a congressman from mm-hmm. Georgia, that, no, you know, Kennedy has to come here. Someone has to tell these people what have happened what happened, and uh, Kennedy would be the, the best person to do that because of his uh, standing with African Americans. Mm-hmm. So uh, Kennedy decided he'd go ahead and uh, go to the rally site and uh, tell the people what had happened. And he sent his wife Ethel on ahead to a local hotel and um, 
travel uh, to the airport for about a 20-25 minute ride uh, to the rally site at 17 mm-hmm. Broadway Street. And he was accompanied on the way by his um, campaign aide, Fred Dutton, and kind of almost rhetorically said, Dutton, you know, what can I say to these people? Yeah. Dutton really didn't have any good ideas, but uh, Kennedy did jot down a few notes on the back of an envelope. And meanwhile, uh, a couple of uh, Kennedy speechwriters, uh, Adam Walensky, uh, Jeff Greenfield, uh, the political pundit today, and uh, John Bartlow Martin were at the Marat Hotel and uh, trying to uh, come up with a speech for Kennedy to give. And Martin remembers um, seeing a policeman that he knew and um, asked him, you know, if he thought Kennedy should um, give his talk. And he said, you sure hoped you, or else there might be hell to pay. Yeah. He was really concerned about violence breaking out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Walensky raced to the rally site and gave Kennedy, um, you know, the, some, the, the speech he prepared, but really Kennedy never referred to it. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, just went up and uh, gave an extemporaneous uh, six-minute speech um, informing the crowd that the king had died. And then from there, going on to really um, giving a very powerful talk about um, the need for compassion and understanding uh, in the face of, of violence. And there's, uh, if you hear the audio or see the video of this talk, um, the, most of the crowd did not know. Uh, that King had been shot. Uh, mm-hmm. About anywhere from 1,000 to 3,000 people at this outdoor rally. Mm-hmm. Uh, majority of African Americans in the crowd, but there, of course there were a number of white people as well. And they were jammed in around uh, this flatbed truck that Kennedy was speaking on the back of mm-hmm. this outdoor site. And uh, there's this audible, you know, kind of shock, kind of sound, uh, almost sound of disbelief that runs through the crowd that you can hear when Kennedy tells them Martin Luther King Jr. had been shot and killed. Mm-hmm. Someone even driving by had said that she heard that noise and, and wondered, you know, what was it that Kennedy had said to elicit such a powerful response from that crowd. And uh, it, from that point on, Kennedy used all um, his experience in dealing with grief uh, that had happened to him following um, the assassination of his brother John Kennedy. And it was really mo- more of a I think a funeral oration. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people I talked to who were at the rally uh, likened it to a religious experience. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Kennedy had used his own grief, his his own emotions, uh, remembering his brother's death, um, to um, calm the rage that might have been growing a lot of uh, people over the news of King's death. Mm-hmm. And he told them, you know, to say a prayer for the for for your country. You know, go back home and and uh, kind of go in peace. And, mm-hmm. uh, crowd took him uh, at his word and um, went home, um, back to their homes, and there were no uh, riots in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned in the book that RFK rarely, if ever, talked about the murder of his brother. Not publicly, no. He had never really talked about it, and this is the first time, I think, in public that he brought it out. He's reminding the crowd, you know, that you know, I had a member of my family killed, but, but, but you know, but he was killed by a white man also. Mm-hmm. Uh, calling for un- understanding uh, when these unthinkable acts happen. Mm-hmm. Was the speech publicized at the time? It, uh, of course, did not receive a lot of attention in the Indianapolis Star. Unfortunately, it was uh, buried uh, in a story, front page story on a youth group being organized for Roger Brannigan. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it did receive uh, considerable attention in the national media, mm-hmm. who had, uh, of course, descended upon Indiana yeah. with, uh, Kennedy's uh, announcement he'd be running in this state. And I think there was also this kind of a cultural shock uh, with these East Coast reporters uh, coming to, to the Midwest. I think one of them likened it to um, uh, you know, a, a Martian, you know, Tommy yeah, landing and you know, being shocked by, by what yeah. he saw. Yeah. At that time, Indianapolis wasn't the most vibrant city. Uh-huh. It changed a lot in, in those years. Downtown has uh-huh. really grown, uh-huh. and there wasn't really a lot for the reporters to do uh, uh-huh. after dark. Uh-huh. Yeah. Quite pleased about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, they can come visit me in Iowa. There's tons to do here. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the, um, well, one of the things I find very interesting is, is how these uh, speeches enter historical uh, memory and kind of become canonized. I was, I, I had the good fortune to interview John um, Lukacs, uh, who has written quite a bit about Winston Churchill, and uh, he wrote an entire book about the uh, blood. No, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Speech. Yeah, no, it's a very good book. Um, but this, but one of the things he points out is that this speech was utterly forgotten at the time, utterly, completely forgotten. Uh, that no one mentions it for years uh, until it, it kind of gets into the uh, popular imagination, and then, and then it comes to stand for for Churchill and for British resolve and and, and this sort of thing. Um, do you think a similar sort of thing happened with this speech? Because as I say, you know, I I was alive at the time. I was very young, but I I don't remember it at all. I, I don't have any recollection of it. But I, I do I do remember on the other hand Johnson saying, uh, "I shall not seek and will not accept." Um, but I don't remember the speech at all. I think it's grown in uh, estimation over the years when people look back and see what uh, what happened in other cities. While Indianapolis was calm. Uh, a lot of these other cities, you know, suffered um, a lot of uh, property damage. People uh-huh. were injured and killed. And, and looking back, they wondered, you know, how did Indianapolis escape all this violence? And they and they turn and look again once again at uh, Robert Kennedy's speech. Uh-huh. And um, it's just something that uh, I found that a lot of people uh, who were at the rally um, really remember that speech and it's one of the highlights of their lives. Yeah. It always seems to crop up on any compilation of like greatest political speeches of all time. It does, yeah, it does, yeah. yeah. It's just, I think, grown in, in power over the years. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, maybe also because of Kennedy's own death. Uh-huh. Uh, you, you look back, and it's a very poignant time. Even John Lewis um, says in his autobiography, uh, you know, he's very downcast about Martin Luther King's death, but. Uh, was was encouraged because well at least we still have Robert Kennedy mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. thought that at the time but of course who knew that just you know a month or two later Kennedy would be dead as well. Mm-hmm. Speaking of a month or two later, why don't you uh, take us past the speech and to the um, primary itself? What what was the result of that? What happened on election day in Indiana? Uh, Kennedy really seemed uh, to um, connect with uh, Indiana voters. Um, I think because Martin was guiding him. Uh, he uh, visited a number of uh, Hoosier historic sites in southern Indiana, uh, a memorial to George Rogers Clark, an American revolutionary hero, um, the uh, boyhood home of Abraham Lincoln, uh, who lived in the state, and also did a lot of campaigning in uh, factory towns trying to connect with uh, blue-collar voters, uh, the white backlash votes that had gone um, you know, for George Wallace back in 1964. Mm-hmm. He, of course, would count on um, a large support of African-American voters. And his um, campaign really hit its stride in um, mid-April, uh, mid to late April, when uh, they were on an old-fashioned 
Railroad Whistle Stop Tour through uh, northeastern Indiana uh, that received uh, a lot of uh, positive media attention. I think a lot of the uh, reporters missed the old days of campaigning on the railroad Mm -hmm. trains. And uh, large crowds greeted him, and it was almost like a rock star on tour. Um, mm-hmm. Kennedy was greeted by um, packed uh, streets whenever he appeared at a campaign. He, people wanted to shake his hand. He'd often end the day with his hands raw and bloody from mm-hmm. people reaching out, scratching with their fingernails. Mm-hmm. In Mishawaka, my hometown, uh, he was uh, campaigning in the back of a open convertible and someone held onto his hand too long and actually pulled him out of the car and his <laughs> chipped his front tooth on the pavement and had Holy to have cow. emergency dental surgery. <laughs> oh boy. Um, and meanwhile, McCarthy, I don't think he ever really connected with Indiana voters. Uh, I think his campaign might have been exhausted by that time. They had uh, you know, run so well in New Hampshire and then gone on to Wisconsin and uh, by the time they got to, to Indiana, they were beset by a, a lot of problems. They didn't have um, the, the money they needed to, to run the campaign. They mm-hmm. pursued this small-town strategy where they um, went to a lot of the smaller Indiana uh, county seats and communities, and it really wasn't the best-run campaign. Uh, they'd schedule events, be late, or wouldn't show up at all. And uh, I don't think McCarthy really uh, felt comfortable here in the state. Um, I know one time you kept talking about people were uh, talking about the poet, the poet, and he was confused. He thought maybe they were talking about his uh, friend Robert Lowell, mm-hmm. but he was quite disappointed to learn that they were talking about James Whitcomb Riley, the, mm-hmm. the Hoosier poet. Yes. Now, you know, I'm not the biggest fan <laughs> of Riley's poetry myself, but he is a Hoosier icon, and you really don't win over... Indiana voters by disparaging one of their reserved yeah. uh, figures from the past. Yeah, yeah, not a good idea. But Kennedy said he, you know, really felt comfortable in Indiana. Uh, he liked Indiana people. Uh, he thought that uh, Indiana voters uh, list, really listened to him and uh, gave him a chance to get his message across. And uh, it worked out for Kennedy in, in the end on uh, election day. Uh, he won the primary with about 42.3% of the vote. Uh, Roger Brannigan uh, did run second uh, with 30.7%, and uh, McCarthy finished third uh, with uh, 27%. Mm-hmm. And, of course, then following um, uh, the election, there was the usual spinning. A lot of the national media uh, thought that although Kennedy had won, he hadn't won convincingly enough mm-hmm. uh, that he needed to get at least 50%. And um, a lot of Kennedy's advisor point out, you know, it's a three-man race. If Brannigan wasn't in it, we would have won a convincing victory over mm-hmm, McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had, re- you know, they'd reached the percentage that they were aiming for. And, mm-hmm. uh, it was a case of, you know, losing here would have been a disaster, uh, but uh, winning didn't give Kennedy campaign the bump. I don't think it needed. They have to go on and battle McCarthy in subsequent primaries mm-hmm. in other states as well. And they did with mixed results. Maybe you could take us uh, through that. Well, period. after Indiana, they went on to Nebraska, uh, where Kennedy defeated McCarthy uh, by a, a fairly uh, good margin. In Oregon, um, in a very liberal uh, state with not a lot of um, uh, problems at the time, no large African-American population, um, Kennedy went for the first time ever. Uh, Kennedy lost an election, and mm-hmm. McCarthy uh, won that primary, mm-hmm. and uh, that set the stage for uh, you know the big prize at that time, the California primary. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, the two men actually had their first and only debate um, uh, on the eve of the voting. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a pretty even affair from the accounts I've read. Uh, Kennedy was seen as perhaps having a narrow win, uh, but the perception was that McCarthy was a superior debater and the fact that uh, Kennedy stayed even with him and actually you know, uh, seemed to win the debate uh, really um, gave him a boost uh, in the polls. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, he went on to, I think, defeat him about 4%, 46 to 42 or something like that over McCarthy. And, um, of course, that evening after his victory speech at mm -hmm. the Ambassador Hotel, Kennedy was going on through a shortcut to the uh, hotel kitchen and mm -hmm. uh, was uh, gunned down by mm -hmm. Sir Hans and, mm -hmm. and died, uh, I think, 26 hours later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, historians don't generally like to uh, pursue what-if questions, but, you know, they are a lot of fun. So yeah. <laughs> I always tell people when I give a talk about this book, you know, that historians are better about telling you what happened and not soothsayers yeah. saying what might have happened. But yeah. A lot of yeah, they're a lot of fun, so I'm going to ask you to indulge our listeners and, and tell us, you know, would, would um, RFK have uh, received the Democratic nomination had he lived? I think, personally, it's very unlikely that he would have won the nomination, uh -huh. even if he survived and gone on. While, you know, Kennedy and McCarthy were involved in this very bitter fight in these primaries, uh, Hubert Humphrey had uh, announced that he'd be running mm -hmm. uh, as well, uh, Johnson's vice president. He announced too late, uh, I think it was near the end of April, uh, too late to get in on any of the ballots uh, in the primary. But at that time, you really didn't need to win uh, the primaries to get the nomination. Three quarters of the delegates selected uh, were selected in, you know, state party conventions, mm -hmm. party caucuses. So Humphrey was, as Kennedy and uh, McCarthy were battling, was going around at these convention caucuses and snatching up, you know, all the delegates he might need uh, to get the nomination at the Chicago convention. Mm -hmm. And even I think some of Kennedy's advisors were saying it was at best only a 50-50 chance that. Uh, Kennedy could go to the convention and, and defeat Humphrey and, and get the nomination for himself. Mm -hmm. Also, I think because of the um, just bitter feelings between Kennedy and Johnson, I really don't think there's any way Johnson would have let he would have done everything he could to deny Kennedy the nomination at the mm -hmm. convention. Mm -hmm. Of course, also if Kennedy had lived, who knows what might have happened at Chicago convention? Mm -hmm. Would there have been? Uh, the violent demonstrations uh, that subsequently went on uh, mm -hmm. with all the, the Yippie protests and the, mm -hmm. the, the riots uh, with the Chicago police and mm -hmm. all the bloodshed that really tarnished the Democrats' chances mm -hmm. in 1968. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps that might have not gone on if Kennedy had been there. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. Now, uh, of course, this is even uh, further removed from what actually happened, but had he received said nomination, could he have defeated Nixon? That's yeah. awfully far field. <laughs> awfully far field, but, you know. Um, Kenny is one of those uh, people in American history who engender either, you know, positive feelings or very negative feelings. You don't find a lot of people who are, you know, in the middle of the road with Robert Kennedy. Uh -huh. um, but if Hubert Humphrey could some, come so close, uh, who knows if that Kenny charisma might have uh, kicked in. He had the experience of uh, running a national campaign. Yeah. He had shown himself to be a very, very good uh, vote-getter in Indiana mm -hmm. and other states. 
someone who uh, worked himself to exhaustion mm-hmm. uh, in, during this campaign in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And it was really a personal triumph for him, I think. And it might have translated into success in an election against mm-hmm. Richard Nixon. Of course, mm-hmm. you know, George Wallace was yes. also a candidate at that time. And if he'd stayed in, it might have siphoned enough votes away from, from Nixon for uh, Kennedy to, to squeak by and yeah. actually yeah. beat Nixon. Yeah, one... Um, uh, kind of trivial pursuit-like moment that I discovered in your book, if I recall correctly, is that uh, is it true that RFK had, how many children did he have at that time? Oh, I, nine or ten. Yes, yeah, he had nine or ten children. Yes, yeah, he had nine or ten. And so I, I'm kind of reminded of this criticism of Sarah Palin and how she is going to do the job of uh, vice president with, with her. How many does she have? I think she has five. I wondered if the same question could be put to RFK. If he had ten, how could he? Take care, possibly, yeah, children, take care of his children and take care of the country. Yeah, I don't think we probably would have heard that. Things have changed quite a bit. Um, yeah, well, uh, anyway, Ray, thanks very much. You know, we've taken up a lot of your time, and we really, really appreciate it. I want to ask you, what is our um, traditional final question here on the show, and what is your next project? What are you working on now? Well, I've written a couple of uh, biographies aimed at younger readers for mm-hmm. the Historical Society, and uh, my newest one is going to be on a gentleman named Alex Vershu who was from uh, East Chicago, Indiana Harbor in mm-hmm. northwestern Indiana, mm-hmm. and was a fighter pilot in World War II mm-hmm. and uh, flew in the Pacific on uh, aircraft carriers and mm-hmm. uh, shot down 19 Japanese planes really? and was um, one of the, at that time the Navy's uh, leading ace. Mm-hmm. Subsequently was shot down over the Philippines, uh, was rescued by some Filipino guerrillas and mm-hmm. spent about five weeks with them. Really? Uh, so it's about his whole career in World War II, how he became a pilot, his experiences fighting in the Pacific uh-huh. and uh, trying to, you know, bring in um, a lot of the detail about uh, the fighting uh-huh. uh, in the air uh-huh. in the Pacific during World War yeah, That sounds fascinating. I'm kind of a military history buff, and there's another connection. I, I had the uh, great good fortune to work with a couple of um, cartoon artists, graphic artists, and produce the scripts for uh, three and I think eventually four short graphic novels about turning points in American history and they were for young people that's why I mentioned it and and a couple of three of them have come out now and, and it, it was uh, I did, it turned out I wasn't very good at it but <laughs> <laughs> so, so but but it was a really interesting exercise to try to write for for young people in that way I, I really enjoyed it it harkens back I think to my days as a journalist where you're you know trying to just uh, reach a, a broad audience yeah and uh, these these are well illustrated volumes. I think photos are really helpful right. uh, for yeah. younger readers that get them really uh, interested in the, in the past. Well, if there are any just words. if there are any literary agents listening, you should call uh, Ray um, Boomhauer about uh, his interest in writing for young people. Yeah, he'll write, he'll write for young people, and you can get him a book contract, and he can write some books for young people, which sell very well. I mean, yeah, that that it really is God's work. I, I think you know one of the th- one of the reasons I started this podcast is that I felt that. You know, there's a, just a wealth of academic history out there of serious history, such as you write, and and it really doesn't find a very large audience. And, and I think it's largely because we're not very good at um, getting the word out about it. But I really hope that a lot of people read this book and they read your future books as well. Well, I appreciate. It. Yeah. Well, Ray, much. thanks for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Marsha. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Ray Boomhauer on his new book, Robert F. Kennedy and the 1968 Indiana Primary. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Music